Bibles, everybody say word. We are in Acts chapter 27, Acts chapter 27, and are plod through the great historical book of Acts. Paul has, has thus concluded his time at Caesarea. We spent two weeks there. Paul spent over two years there. He is now on his way to Rome. He steps aboard in chapter 27 of a trade vessel uh, along with other prisoners under Roman guard. Paul is about to sail into one of the largest storms of his life. And I mean that literally. I don't mean allegorical storm, but a storm of literal and massive proportions. In fact, Acts 27 serves as an edge-of-the-seat, nail-biting story of adventure on the high seas. It serves as an epic narrative transition between Caesarea and Rome, but it reads like one of the ancient odysseys that has captured the mind of readers for centuries. This particular odyssey, though, yeah, is no work of fiction. In fact, it is a preserved chapter in one of history's greatest stories in the story in the life of Paul the Apostle, who we now know as Paul the Prisoner. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, there they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Verse 2. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we, I want you to just underline that or catch that, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So as you remember from last week, Paul stood boldly uh, before the high uh, reigning council of the Romans, the high authority governing all Judea, and he shared his story. He preached his, his testimony of who he was before Christ interrupted and changed his life and how Jesus powerfully got a hold of him and how he'd been faithful to serve Jesus ever since. As you remember from last week, Governor Festus called him crazy. King Agrippa mocked Paul's intensity in trying to win him to the faith, and they all concluded that Paul had done nothing deserving of death, but because Paul had appealed to the high court, to the emperor, uh, a decision that really kept Paul from being ambushed by the high Jewish council. Paul was now on his way to Rome, and he began his journey on a medium-sized cargo vessel uh, that would sail through the Mediterranean. I have an artist's rendition of this particular cargo vessel. Uh, it was small in nature. Uh, it, it would take on some level of cargo. The tonnage was a little bit greater than some of the smaller vessels that sailed the Mediterranean, and it could handle some of the rougher seas. And this is the style of ship that Paul, fellow prisoners, uh, began their journey on. Paul was under the guard of a Roman centurion named Julius, and based upon the we statement, I asked you to kind of pay attention to that in verse 2, we're also clued in that not only was Aristarchus, Paul's friend, aboard the boat, but so was Luke. So the historian that has penned this great historical work was also aboard the ship for what would become the most unforgettable voyage of their life. They first set sail to the port city of Sidon, just north of Caesarea, where Julius the cohort gave Paul some liberty and some shore leave, uh, ultimately spending the day at Sidon before sailing on. Guess what you're about to look at? A map! Fantastic. And I have my laser pointer. I am so excited. See, you guys are kind of fickle. You cheer candy corn and you cheer the, the laser pointer. I don't know. 
All right, well, here they are. Begin in Jerusalem. You all remember Paul was at Jerusalem. He escaped under the cover of night to Antipatris, then to Caesarea. They're aboard this medium sailing vessel. They sail up to Sidon. Paul is given some shore leave and some liberty uh, to visit some friends while they're at Sidon. That was a, a place where a church had been planted. So in verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. That is the day after they had arrived, they put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, we see this often. Paul is given a, a, a level of, of uh, freedom uh, under the authority of some of these Roman soldiers. And this tells me that Paul had some level of winsomeness about his life. People actually liked him. The Romans were not exactly known for being gracious or kind, especially when they were taking care of, sol- uh, taking care of prisoners and so I think there is this picture where Paul was, was treated kindly because he was a faithful guy. And people saw that he was faithful to the Lord. They may not have worshipped the God he worshipped, but they saw in him a faithfulness and a winsomeness that afforded him some level of good treatment. So he was able to visit some friends. Well, they put out to sea again, and at this point they sail under the Lee of Cyprus. There's some clues that we're going to pick up as we go through the chapter that this trip gets progressively harder and harder. The reference to the Lee of Cyprus tells us that they were sailing close to land. In fact, they tried to to make their way through two pieces of land to afford a bit of a windbreak, and it says here, because the winds were against us. And so they make choice here to sail close to the land, uh, close to the island of Cyprus and the mainland, which provided a necessary windbreak. In fact, I want to show you this map one time to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. And so as they were sailing, they had quite a bit of, of adverse wind, and so they tried to sail in between these two land the mainland, this is the present-day Turkey and present-day island of Cyprus, they sail in between the two so that they can get a break from the wind. This tells us that the seas were not exactly friendly sailing or smooth sailing. So we get to verse 5. It says, And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra at Lycia. And one more time, this map. So they sail, and they get down over here right off the coast uh, there's Myra, right off the coast of present-day Turkey to the port city. At this point, this medium-sized vessel, in my opinion, probably stopped sailing. Uh, it was no longer going to continue its journey, uh, probably because it was getting late into the year. Uh, in an attempt to get Paul and the other prisoners to Rome before winter, the centurion sought out a larger sailing vessel. In fact, a sailing vessel from the city of Alexandria. Now, what we don't realize is Alexandria in Egypt was considered Rome's bread basket. In fact, all of Rome was resourced in and through Alexandria. And so there were massive cargo ships that would sail from Egypt up and around the Mediterranean, ultimately to Rome. And so the centurion, that is Julius, sought passage on one of those vessels from Alexandria that was transporting grain and cargo. These ships were the lifeline. It's going to prove in this passage to actually be quite the opposite. Instead of a lifeline, it almost brings them all to their early death. Look at verse 6. It says, There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, in the time, Romans had complete authority over all of the sailing vessels. And so Julius was able to say, hey, we're going to come aboard. Here's an artist's rendition uh, of this particular vessel. It's really hard, actually, to find images and pictures. These boats have long since been destroyed. But it's kind of 
an, it gives us a general idea. Obviously, this is what existed below the waterline. This vessel could carry a tonnage, and we're talking massive amounts of grain and cargo and persons. In fact, we're going to come to discover this particular boat had quite a bit aboard. And so they, they board this ship at Myra in hopes of getting to Rome before winter. Verse 7. We sailed, how did we sail? What is that word? Slowly uh, for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete. Every time you see that phrase, the lee of, that is cluing you in. They're hugging the land to afford a windbreak off of Salmon. Coasting along it with what? Difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens. Uh, near which was the city of Lassia. And so here we are again on the map. And so they sail. They sail across the open seas. They go across the Lee of Crete. So they're sailing close to the, the island itself to get a windbreak. And they come to this little tiny port called Fair Havens. In fact, here's a, this is what it looks like today. Uh, and you can tell there's very little there. Uh, there was even less there 2,000 years ago. And so they sail into this particular port, and they're afforded a bit of a windbreak. And at this point, they're faced with a monumental decision. Verse 9. Since much time had passed, why had much time passed? Because of the difficulty and the slowness of the journey. And the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. I'll explain that in just a moment. Paul advised them. He said, sirs... I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our very lives. Now, the traveling had been slowed due to the impending seasonal winds. The window for safe sailing had long since closed. There's a reference to the season of fasting, uh, which is a reference to the, the Passover feast, uh, which would take place somewhere in September, October. We're actually approaching November in the narrative uh, and after some research, I've come to discover that the worst time to sail uh, was somewhere after November. In fact, the ships would port during November through the winter because the Mediterranean was so unstable. In fact, the weather and the seas were very unpredictable, and the weather could turn, turn violent uh, instantaneously without any warning. And so Paul, taking opportunity, he had sailed quite a bit. In fact, if you look at some of his own testimony, Paul had already been through two shipwrecks. And so he's like, look, guys, I've seen this before, <laughs> and I've been in, in really dangerous seas and issues. Please listen. Again, verse 10, sirs, I perceive, so whether he's speaking prophetically or just with common sense, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and loss, not only of cargo and ship, but of our very lives. And so the centurion and the captain and the owner of the ship have a decision to make, either stay in the port of Fairhaven, which really did not afford them an opportunity to sell their grain or find lodging. In fact, they would face a large financial loss if they stayed there or attempt to sail on. Which, which choice do you think they make? Let's sail on. Verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. The owner and the pilot had a vested interest in getting to port. And because the harbor was not suitable, i.e. they couldn't sell their grain there and they couldn't find adequate lodging, the majority decided to put out to sea from there and listen to the phraseology of this. And on the chance that somehow 
They sound pretty confident, don't they? Uh, They could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And so their hope is, uh, again, the map, they're hoping to basically turn the horn of Crete and come up here to the city of Phoenix where they could find port lodging and an opportunity to sell their grain and kind of ride out the winter. And so even though it seemed improbable, uh, maybe by chance we could get there, they are driven by dollars and certainly not by common sense. And so they, they set out to see. They are given a false uh, confidence that somehow their trip has been, been ordained. Verse 13 says, Now when the south wind blew gently. Doesn't that sound nice? Uh, got that nice summer wind unseasonally warm, blowing gently. Supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to shore. And so they have some level of kind of mitigated, confident hesitancy, still kind of hugging the island, and they're thinking, oh, we got safe passage. No, they did not. Verse 14, soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. It's common off the island of Crete. Uh, winds would come off the mountain ranges. In fact, this is described as a northeaster. It, it is describing the style of wind, uh, less a name, more of a style coming out of the north, moving from east to west. Verse 15. And when the ship was caught, literally seized by the force of the wind and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. And so at this point, the, the ship is literally grabbed by the wind. And at some point, they make it to a small little covering of an island and this is where they stow some of their cargo, and they stow the, the emergency ship that they were towing and, and some of the tackle, verse 16, running under the lee of a small island. And again, that is telling you they are sailing with difficulty. Uh, of Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. There was often a boat that would be tugged along behind a major ship like this. They could use it to passage to land and back. So they lifted up on board, verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. This is, this is major problem time. They are now sending ropes and chains around the hull of the boat and tightening it to keep the hull from breaking apart. Uh, then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, so they dropped the sails at this point and thus were driven along. There's nothing else they can do at this point in time. They are truly at the mercy of the winds in the hand of God. You know, so much of our life is lived in this imaginary world of apparent control, where for the most part, we we sail along like we are the sovereigns of our own ship and life. We act like navigators, plotting the course of our journey. And that illusion is sustained under those gentle southern winds, isn't it? It's an illusion that comes crashing down in the storms of life. Whether actual storms like Hurricane Michael that just ravaged the panhandle uh, of of Florida this week, or Hurricane Florence that pummeled uh, the Carolinas a few weeks ago. We can fly planes into hurricanes. We can track a hurricane's course. We can board up our windows. But I will tell you, once that storm hits, we are at the mercy of wind and wave. All apparent control is lost. And that's not just the literal storms of this life. Those are the, the also proverbial storms, storms like cancer, and a job loss, and a downturn in the market, and the death of a loved one, or loss of a relationship. I mean, even a traffic jam. Have you ever been in a hurry? 
and then you made the mistake of going through the mix master, I don't care what time of day you get on that stupid highway, you are never getting through it clearly. We think we're in control, and we're flying along the highway of life, and all of a sudden it's like, and we're confronted with that grating reality that we are not in control. These men are now completely at the mercy of the winds. And in fact, as the days pass, more and more hope is lost. Verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Oh, that precious cargo that just had to get to port. It's now swallowed by the sea. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their, their own hands. Now all that remained on boat were some 276 people, a, grain, uh, a hole full of grain, and four anchors. They've done all that they can do. All they can do now is wait. Have you ever been there? In the storm of whatever you're going through in life, that you've done everything you possibly can do. You've, like, you've, you've thrown the cargo overboard. You've jettisoned all the tackle. You've, you've done everything, and then all you can do at that point is just wait. It's the worst, isn't it? Waiting, in my opinion, is the worst. It is usually during waiting where we make the most ridiculous decisions ever. I always encourage people, when you're in the crisis, that is not the time to make major life decisions. It's painful to be in the storm, to be out of options, to be out of control, and day after day, with no end in sight, all hope is lost. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I will call this the day of perpetual night. I love this artist's rendition of the day of perpetual night. Pretty hopeless, isn't it? I think some of us feel that way today. I've been told it's, it's not so much when you're in a storm or if you'll be in a storm, it's just when we are either in a storm, we're making our way out of a storm, or we are quickly headed for one, the storms of this life. And in these seasons, no matter what is done, no matter how frantically the cargo is tossed, no matter how much tackle is jettisoned, the storm remains all hope of being saved is lost and abandoned. And you know what people do when in seasons of this type of crisis? They do what people do when they're in crisis. We stop sleeping, we stop eating, and we slip farther and farther into despondency and hopelessness. And it's in this, this day of perpetual night, in this complete hopelessness, a single voice of hope cries out. You don't realize how much light you possess when it's dark. Just a little flicker of light is all it sometimes takes. Verse 21. Since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And we read that, and it's almost like Paul's going, Nah, 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 nah. I assure you he wasn't. He's on the boat too. He's filled with compassion. He's saying, guys, you should have listened, but don't lose hope. They're starving and they're hopeless and they're assured of death. Paul's saying, look, you should have listened, 
But all is not lost, verse 22. He says, now I urge you to take heart. It is a phrase that means to be of courage. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel, listen to this, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Family, this boat was filled with worshipers of every sort. Men who gave their offerings to Diana and their devotion to Athena. They carried shrines to the temple, Nike, and relics of all sorts of gods and goddesses among the Greek and Roman pantheons. Gods that were made by human hands. Gods that could not hear. Gods that could not intervene or save. But among them stood one who had an intimate relationship with the living God And within the night watch, that living God sent to Paul, one of his servants, an angel, to remind Paul of the words that had been spoken to him when he was back at Jerusalem. That no matter what he faced, no matter what he went through, he was going to make it to Rome. And just so we can kind of reorient our minds to the original uh, promise made by Jesus while Paul was in a prison cell in Acts 23, verse 11, I want us just to look at it again. The Lord Jesus told Paul to do what? Take what? Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me at Rome. He never said it was going to be easy. He never said that he would not face adversity. In fact, we have seen time and again it was a difficult journey. But the Lord did tell Paul he was going to make it to Rome. And just as he relayed these words to Paul when he was in Jerusalem... During the night watch, an angel appeared to Paul in verse 24. It says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And the angel said to me, Do not be afraid. Don't be scared, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you also those who sail with you. And so Paul rises from this vision of the night, and he stands before 275 men, and he says, men, take courage. He takes the courage that he has just received from the Lord through his word, and he then passes it on to these petrified and terrified men who are sure of their death. He says, take courage. You will not die. All that will be lost is the ship. And when you're about to die, who cares about the ship, right? And truly, he's the embodiment of what it means to be an encourager. Family, to encourage somebody is to infuse them with hope and courage that you yourself have received. Encouragement is not trite. It is not cheap. I often hear cheap encouragement. The sun will come out tomorrow, tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar. That's not true encouragement because the sun doesn't always come out. For 14 days, the sun did not come out. The stars did not shine. This was not cheap encouragement. Paul was in the throes of death just like them. And even in that, we maybe catch a glimpse, Christian, why God allows us to go through the storms we go through. Sometimes we wonder, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? 
Why would you do this to me? Where are you? And there are times where God will allow us to go through the storms of this life so we can be a testimony to those who are panicking. Take courage. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, we don't think much of the 14th night, but this is a significant night. Things start to change. For two full weeks, they've been in darkness. As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Something changed about the course of the sea. They knew something was different. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And what, what they were doing, what it says to take a sounding, it literally means to throw out the lead. And so they were taking a large lead ball attached to a rope, and they would throw it out and let it sink, and it would tell them how deep the water was. At first it was 120 feet, then it was 90 feet, and they began to realize, oh no, we're about to hit rock. And so they immediately cast out the anchors, look at verse 29, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, listen to this, they let down four anchors from the sterns, and what did they do? Have you ever heard that phrase, that there's no atheists in foxholes? (laughs) <laughs> they prayed for a day to come. They're like, hey, Paul, what was your God's name again? Jesus? Ah, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Everybody gets downright spiritual in the crisis and the storms. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the story of Jonah, that wayward prophet who ironically thought he could get away from the presence of the Lord as if God was like a regional God and he could like get on a boat and sail away from God. And God's like, I own it all. But in that particular narrative, in that piece of history, a vessel full of ungodly men came to hear of and even began to worship the living God. If you look at Jonah chapter 1, you will see a group of ungodly men calling out on the living God. And back here on the SS sinking fast, all of a sudden they're like praying men. And they're not praying to Athena. And they're not crying out to Nike. They are calling out to the living God. Maybe there's a reason why you're there. Oh, Christian. And the crisis, so other people can hear of this God you trust in, who is truly the anchor of your soul. Verse 30. As the sailors, I love this, <laughs> this is so good, because <laughs> there's this group of guys that are like, <whistles> they're trying to escape the ship. Look at this. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea, under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, they're like, oh, hey, we're going to lay out some more anchors. Hey, let's go, guys. And they're like trying to get off the boat. And Paul's like, no, you're not going anywhere. No one's getting off this pleasure cruise early. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, we all die. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes to the ship's boat and let it go. How do you think those guys who were trying to escape felt? Oh no, there goes our boat. Thanks, Paul. We appreciate your faith. <laughs> but what was, what was the picture here? There's no plan B. B, there's no escape. You're riding this thing out. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, oh, I'm sorry, verse 33, his day was about to dawn. Oh, don't want to move too quick. Paul urged them to take some food. He says, today is the 14th day. Some of you right now are like, oh, I hope the 14th day finally comes. It's been so dark. Take some food. 
You've been continuing in suspense and vexation of your soul without food, having nothing to eat. Therefore, take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Great faith. Verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread and he, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all those who were aboard the ship. And he began to eat and they were all encouraged. They're like, okay, we we're, we're going to be okay, right? And they're looking to Paul. 276 people or 275 are all looking at this one guy going, okay, I can eat. It's going to be okay. I'm going to make it through this. God, again, will allow us to be cast into storms so that those with us can be encouraged with our presence and our faith. Verse 38, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. There's no turning back. This is it. Either we hit land or we die. There's no more food on board the boat. They are, they are literally helpless if this plan fails. Verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach. All of a sudden, they see this beautiful sandy beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, and they left them in the sea. At the same time, they loosened the rope that tied the rudders. They dropped the rudders, and then they hoisted the foresail, and they made for the beach. They dropped the hammer, and they're like, we're going for that beach. And then very quickly, <laughs> they're brought to a standstill. Verse 41, but striking a reef, ah, a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the back of the boat began to, to rip apart. All of a sudden, the soldiers get a, a, a hair trigger finger. They're like, oh, we've got to kill these guys. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Because if a soldier loses a prisoner, they're immediately put to death under Roman law. And so they're like, okay, so let's just put everybody to death. But all of a sudden, Julius, this guy, this cohort of the Augustan cohort, steps in. And he goes, whoa, 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 wait. I really like Paul. Verse 43, the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept him from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it for land, and the rest on planks and on pieces of the ship. Those guys who could swim were pretty stoked. But everybody else, the ship's being broken apart, and they're like, ah! diving onto planks and dragging themselves. And, and one by one, each man dragged himself from the sea, <sighs> laying on the beach. Looking around, and it says in the scriptures, and so it was all, all, not one was lost, all were brought safely to land. Isn't that an epic odyssey? Come on, you can clap. That's amazing. I spent my whole week here. I've actually been there. I've paddled out in some really big surf, and I lost my surfboard, and I was assured of death. I will tell you, you will never be so happy to lay on a piece of sand in all of your life, the cold, wet sand. It's the greatest, greatest bed you could ever lay on. And what they didn't realize is they're now 50 miles south of Italy. This unknown island happens to be the island of Malta, and their presence is going to change the life of the Maltese forever. We are going to see the most radical transformation in the people of the Maltese. That literally goes on to this day. And that's where we'll pick up next week. So a few applications for us as we look at this narrative. One that seems to just like jump right out of the text itself is that we are not in control. <laughs> there are times when we're going to be powerless 
and at the mercy of the storms that we face. I mean, we can fight it, right? We can throw out the cargo. We can jettison the tackle. We can make backup plans. But ultimately, you are not in control. And in fact, control itself is an illusion. It's a myth. We are not the captains of our ship. We're not the navigators of our lives. We are at best a participant. It is the Lord who is ultimately in control. And so my encouragement is to you, let go of that illusion. We are not in control. There are things that we have responsibility over, but the one who has control and authority over our life is who? The Lord himself. That may sound scary, but I'll tell you, there is no more comforting place to be than to be in the hands of the living God. Because I know that his compassionate hand is going to carry me from this life on into eternity. That is whom I trust. So secondly, our reaction to the storms of this life, I think it very much ties into our, our view of apparent control. I just very briefly want to compare very quickly the early disciples with the mature Apostle Paul. Because they both face storms. I think we'll find encouragement here. Early during Jesus' ministry, he boarded a vessel with his disciples. So just briefly turn over to Mark chapter 4. I find this very encouraging. I don't know if it's encouraging. Because sometimes I'm in the storm and I freak out just like they do. Mark 4, verse 35. And so Jesus is entering the boat. They're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. It says, on that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, hey, let's go across to the other side. Where were they going to make it to? Where did Jesus say they were going to make it to? The other side. You see that right there? Let's get in the boat and die in the middle. Do you notice how that phraseology is missing from the text? Let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Interesting. Verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Jesus is literally with them and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep. And they woke him. Why were they tripping? He said they were going to the other side. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. Who is he talking to? He wasn't talking to the wind. He was talking to the disciples. The wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said, Why were you so afraid? Have you still so little faith? They hadn't been through a lot of storms yet as followers. They were still learning who Jesus was. And when we compare their reaction to that of Paul many more years into his maturing Christian faith, we can see the contrast. You see, early in our Christian life, the smallest windstorm, whether real or perceived, threatened to do us in. It could be a job loss or a a breakup or a failed exam, a traffic jam. (laughs) We throw up our hands. We're like, God, you don't even care about me. Why did you put me on the mix, Master? 635 has been under construction for 25 years. (laughs) We throw up our hands. But as we grow and we navigate storms and suffering, we come to realize our faith grows. 
The longer we live the Christian life, the more we recognize that God can be trusted. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He has not taken you this far to drop you. So here's your application. You cannot avoid storms. There are some that we bring on ourselves, but I'm talking about the storms of this life. They're, they're unavoidable. Learn from them. Understand that what may cast you long into panic today, later in your Christian life, will be like a speed bump. Take courage from other Christians. Christians, you who have been through the storms of this life, infuse courage into you fellow believers that they're going to make it. Don't just watch storm-tossed Christians sink under the waves and think to yourself, wow, what a poor schmuck. But actually come alongside of them and say, I have been in the waves. In fact, I'm getting in the ocean with you. You're not going to sink. Because the courage that we have received, we infuse in the lives of others. And this leads to the, the third application is please be a true encourager. Be a person of faith. Encourage another person. It means to infuse them with courage. There are all sorts of issues we face. There is panic in our culture today. There is fear. And I see it on the faces of the people. We're a scared culture. We're panic-stricken and hopeless. And people look at us. And they're like, you're a Christian. Why are you panicking? We sometimes act like we're not going to be saved. I want to encourage you, no challenge you, be that voice of faith in your family, in your workplace, and in your community. Don't spread fear and panic. Spread faith and courage. Because we have a hope that will not disappoint. And as we mature in our Christian faith, we will encourage others, and then people will go, wait, what's your God's name? Jesus, okay, I'm going to call out on him too. Because I'm scared, and you have faith. I want what you have, O oh, Christian. Lord, we thank you for incredible passages like the one we just looked at. We thank you for the challenge, courage it infuses in us. I pray that it would not in any way, shape, or form elicit a sense of guilt or shame for failed sales in the past. We're in process. So Lord Jesus, we turn to you. You are truly the captain of our ship. You are the navigator of our life. You are the one who plots our steps. Give us greater faith today to know that you can be trusted. If you do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he is risen. And the Bible declares that all who trust in him will be saved. If that is your heart's desire and the quietness of that place, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me, that you were buried and you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you have passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are forever a child of the living God. But that does not mean you won't face storms. But it does mean he will be with you through them. And so will your fellow Christians. Unify us as a people, Lord Jesus, that we would face these storms together in courage and in strength that you provide. 
you can be trusted. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.